Good morning. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, it is a good morning to be rejoicing in the Lord, even as there's ice on the windshields. Joys of Michigan. Have you ever led a garage sale or an auction for a missions teen trip, a teen mission trip? I have. And some kids would bring stuff that was really dear to them. It was stuff that was hard for them to give up. They, they brought it and I knew it was worth a lot to them or it was worth a lot of money. You could see they were really making an effort to raise money for the mission trip. Other kids would bring a hot wheel that didn't have one of its tires. Uh, action figure that was missing an arm. And one year, I got a video game system that didn't have any of the plugs or any of the controllers. It was just the console. And basically what kids are doing is, okay, do I give something that is of worth or do I bring something that I don't want anymore that really could be thrown away? In today's story, God has an accusation against the Israelites. They were bringing their broken Hot Wheels. They were bringing their broken video game systems. They were bringing their leftovers, the things that wouldn't hurt to give up, the things that didn't really matter that much. See, God had clearly outlined what an acceptable sacrifice was in His Word. The animals were to be without blemish. But the Israelites were picking instead the worst animals in their flock. The ones that had broken legs. The ones that were lame. The ones that were diseased. And they were bringing those forward to the Lord. Basically, when they brought God their stuff, they were bringing Him their leftovers. And unfortunately, we can often do the same. So my challenge today is to ask this question. Are we bringing God our leftovers too? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, your word challenges us. It encourages us. It brings life to our mortal bones. And yet sometimes you use it to confront our sin or our selfishness. So we pray today as we open your word, we pray that you'd speak through it. Lord, as we hear your words to the Israelites and their response, may it challenge us in how we live and how we walk through each and every day. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Malachi 1.6. If you're visiting that with us, we, we just jumped into Malachi last week. Malachi happens about a hundred years after the Israelites had returned back to Israel. Persia was still in control, but they were having freedom. They were able to rebuild the temple. They were able to settle back in Israel, and they'd been there for a hundred years. And if you remember, uh, God gives six speeches And in each speech, he gives a a declarative statement or an accusation. And then the nation of Israel objects to what God is saying. And then God provides an answer for what he is claiming. Now, in some of these dialogues, this happens multiple times. So in today's dialogue, there's actually going to be a couple of different accusations and a couple of different objections and a couple of different answers. So we're going to look at the second speech of Malachi, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord. Now, if you remember from last week, God began Malachi by telling the Israelites, I love you. In fact, the way it was phrased in the Hebrew, it was, I have always loved you. 
I will always love you. He declared his statement of love to the nation of Israel. But their response was, how, how have you loved us? They were looking around at their situation. They're saying, I don't see that love clearly. And so God outlined his sovereign choice of the nation of Israel over all other nations and how he chose them. Now, in the second accusation, he reminds Israel that he didn't just love them. He loved him as a father. And so the response to a father's love is that a son should honor his father. God is the father of Israel. He chose them, redeemed them, loved them, disciplined them, and sustained them. But they don't honor him as a father. They don't even honor him as a master. Even a slave honors his master, and yet they are not giving any respect or honor to the Lord Almighty. This phrase, the Lord of hosts, the Lord who is in control of the armies of heaven, the God of angel armies, they were not honoring or respecting him. It's clear in this tone that they're not doing this. Now this word for honor that's used here in Hebrew, it means kabod. It's this idea of honor or glory. They're not giving him the proper glory that he deserves as a sovereign God, the proper honor. The respect, this word respect, it can be translated fear as well, but it's this idea of reverence, of putting God in the right place. We think about worshiping God. I mean, we sang the song, Holy Forever. Do we put God in the right place? Do we recognize who He is and who we are in relation to Him? But how did they do this? Here's God's accusation. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. It's you priests who show contempt for my name. Now, little reminder of the history, if you weren't here last week, uh, Assyria came in in 722 and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Then Babylon came in in 586 and conquered the southern kingdom, sent them into exile into Babylon. Now you fast forward, the Persians conquered Babylon, and the Persians gave the Israelites freedom to go back to their country. And so even though... They had freedom, even though the Persians gave them the ability to go back, rebuild the temple, gave them the ability to go back, rebuild the walls, there was still no king for Israel. Technically, Persia was still in control. Technically, Persia was still ruling them. And so then who were the leaders of Israel in that time if there's no kings? Well, basically, the priests at that time became both the religious and the political leaders. They were supposed to be the representatives of God to the people and the representatives of the people to God. And they would work in the temple. They'd perform sacrifices. They'd lead all the festivals that Israel did each and every year. And here God is saying, those priests are showing contempt for their name. There's two words that we see, depending on our translation, either despised or contempt. Now, Webster Dictionary says contempt is a lack of reverence for something. And it defines despise as to regard something as worthless. One commentary described it as an attitude of ongoing disrespect. But interestingly, this is the same word used in the story of Jacob and Esau. Now, if you remember that story, Esau was out hunting and he came home and he was famished. And he went in and Jacob was cooking soup. And he told Jacob, I need some of your soup. And Jacob said, okay, well, give me your birthright. Now, I've had some expensive bowls of soup in my day. But basically, he's saying, give me all of your inheritance for one bowl of soup. And Esau agrees. 
Why? Well, it says he despised his birthright. That's the word used. Esau treated something of great worth, of tremendous worth, and he despised it and traded it instead for something that's not worth very much, just a bowl of soup. And God is accusing the priests of doing the exact thing. They're trading something of greatest worth, uh, the worship of God, the worship of their Redeemer, and they're treating it as worthless and therefore showing contempt for the name of the Lord. And so he gives another accusation. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, here's the objection, how have we shown contempt for your name? See, God's people didn't realize what they had done. They were so blinded by their sins, so blinded by their patterns of behavior that they didn't recognize what they were doing. And so God answers, by offering defiled food on my offer, on my altar. Defiled, polluted, unclean, unacceptable food. See, God had given clear commands about what was acceptable, and they were offering stuff that was defiled. But you ask, how have we defiled you? Again, they're not recognizing what they did. So God says, okay, all right, I'm going to explain it to you. He says, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? So we know they're not offering the right stuff, but why why do we know that? Let's rewind to Leviticus 22. God is going to explain what he expects in the sacrifices in the temple. So the Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the Israelites and say to them, If any of you whether an Israelite or foreigner residing in Israel, presents a gift or a burnt offering to the Lord, either to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering, you must present what? A male without defect from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order that it may be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow, or as a free will offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured, the maimed, or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. But that's exactly what the nation of Israel was doing. They were treating the Lord's temple as contemptible. Remember those definitions? a lack of reverence for something, regarding something as worthless, an attitude of ongoing disrespect. They were despising the table of the Lord just like Esau despised his birthright by offering lame animals, blind animals, animals with festering, what does it say there, festering warts, running sores. I mean, this is what they're offering. And God says, try giving that to your governor. (laughs) you imagine, you know, we... We, we think of, you know, governor, someone really important. So imagine you pick a political leader, right? Someone who's, you know, you know the governor of, of Michigan. All of you love our governor. We'd love to have more for dinner. But you have the governor over for dinner, and you say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kill this sheep that's diseased and has festering sores just for you, right? And the governor would say, what? <laughs> no, that's unacceptable. And he said, 
God's saying, Israelites, you are doing this. You're offering these unacceptable things that you would never give to your governor, that you would never give to someone else. If someone important came to your house, you would never use these. This is ridiculous. I was trying to think through what like an example from modern times is, and, and I thought, okay, what is something that we know is, is unacceptable? And so I thought of um, if you went to Roos Chris, um, that's the most expensive restaurant I know of. There's probably more expensive ones, but um, I just know it because it started in Amber, and I like Michigan. Anyways, but uh, I think it started in Amber. Anyways, not relevant. So if you go there and you get $500 worth of food, and at the end of the time, you had great service. The, 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 the waiter was fantastic. You're done. The bill comes, $500, and you put a dollar on the table. And you go, thanks for your service. That waiter would be like, what, what are you talking about? You know, culturally, it should be at least $75. If I did a great job, it should be $100. You're giving me a dollar? It would be insulting. And this is what Israel is doing. They're insulting the Lord. God said, this is what my standard is. This is what it looks like to give your best, and you're giving your worst. I thought about another one. I thought about like if uh, Jeff Bezos uh, was a member at North Park. And we need to be at, build a $300,000 elevator and bathrooms. He said, we're trying to do this. And Bezos was like, here's a dollar, you know. And if you don't know him, he owns Amazon. He's got billions and billions of dollars. Like 300000 to him is probably like, you know, five bucks for me. But if he was a member here, he's like, no, I'm not going to give to that. I don't care about that. It's this idea of giving God our best and not just saying, well, this is a little I can give up, but, but giving God the best. Instead of giving their healthy animals, instead of going to the animals and saying, this is the best sheep I have. Of all my sheep, this is the best one, and so I'm going to bring the best and give it to the Lord. They were going and saying, what's the one I don't want anymore? What's the one that, you know, I know if I try to sell it on the market, I'm going to get a dollar. If I sell this one, I'll get $20. Which one is the best? And we can have that same attitude. We can just give God the stuff that we don't want. Okay, God, I can't give you my best, but whatever I have left over after everything else, that's what I'll give to you. So what does God say to the Israelites? He said, now now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offering from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord. The rhetorical answer to that is no. If these are the offerings you're bringing to me, then no, I will not accept you. One of my commentaries pointed out that we do this too. We say, look, God, I know I haven't attended church in a while. I know I haven't been faithful to read the Word. I know I haven't given any of my research toward the ministry. I know I haven't devoted my time to the work of sharing the gospel. I know I haven't memorized and meditated on your truths. But God, would you please bless my situation at this time? We often treat God like a genie in a bottle. You know, we we put it away, and then we have a need. Something, a car breaks down, something happens, and we're like, okay, God, I'm going to rub the lamp. This is where I need you to to work. And and that God said, that's that's not what I want from you. I want your your best. There's this story of Jesus in the New Testament, and he was he saw this crowd, and and they were longing. They were like a sheep without a shepherd, and they were longing for food. And so he had mercy on them. He had compassion on them. And he went to his disciples. He said, go see if there's any food. And they had five loaves and two fishes. He said, that's good enough. And he fed that crowd. Now, we don't know exactly how many people were in the crowd. There were 5,000 men, but we don't know how many women and children. So it could have been 10, 15, 20,000 people. 
And they fed them all with five loaves and two fishes. They were astounded. That night, Jesus withdrew and eventually got across on the other side of the lake. And the people woke up in the morning and they go, where's this Jesus guy? We've got to find him. And so they traveled to the other side of the lake and they found Jesus. And Jesus said this, you're just coming to see me because your, your stomachs are hungry. You're just looking for more food. Jesus saw through their heart and realized they just wanted something from him. They weren't really coming to worship him. They just wanted another meal. See, sometimes we unfortunately are just like that. God, what are you going to give us? What are you going to do for me? You know, it's not about what I do for you, God. It's about what you do for me. Would you do these things for me? And then when things are fine, we just kind of put that genie back on the shelf. See, it's easy for us to have that same attitude. But God says, if you want my blessing, you have to change your heart and you have to change your actions. Verse 10, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Can you imagine God saying that to us as a church? Oh, that you would shut the church doors so you would not sing your empty praise songs to me, that you would not speak your empty commitments while giving me only what is convenient and refusing to obey my commands. God said to Israel, Look, I'm not pleased with you. I'm not going to accept your offensive offerings if this is what you're bringing to me. Verse 11, My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And we look around today, and God's name is great and praised in every different nation because of who He is. The, the Israelites' failure could not stop God being glorified. But then the Israelites accuse again. Or God, sorry, God accuses the Israelites again. But you profane it by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. You sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. The Israelites were complaining, this is too hard, this is too difficult, I can't do this. And so they cut corners. And this is, you profane it when you bring injured Next slide. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. They were complaining about bringing their offerings, and yet, even though they had good offerings they looked at their flock they had a good sheep it says they they cheated the lord by instead of choosing that good sheep they chose a lame one and they brought it before the lord and they're saying look this is too hard god our money's too tight i don't have time for this sometimes following jesus has a cost a couple weeks ago uh my wife was was doing something that was hard and long and we knew it was going to take a long time, and about four hours into it, uh, she texted me, it's been four hours, and we knew we had, she had more time left, and I just said, remember the mission. Remember the mission. That's something we always have to put on our mind. As foster parents, that was often what we said, remember the mission. No matter what you're doing, if it's at work, and you have a boss that is really difficult, and really hard to work with, 
It could just be those little points where you say, okay, God, you've called me to be a shining light in a dark world. Remember the mission. Now, chapter 2 makes a shift. It, it shifts to leaders. Now, chapter 1 was about the leaders too, but, but he says, and now, priests, this warning is for you. Now, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because if an Israelite brought a lame sheep to the priest, what was the priest supposed to do? Go take it back. <laughs> Go get one that's acceptable. And if that person was poor, the priest was supposed to help him. Get, find a way to have uh, an appropriate sacrifice. But the priests were going, that's fine. <laughs> sure, I'll take that diseased lamb. I'll take that lame lamb. And so really the priests were the ones that were having this issue. The people of Israel were a reflection of the leadership of Israel and the spiritual leadership of the priests. God says, if you do not listen, if you do not resolve to honor my name. Now this Hebrew idea carries the his Hebrew phrase carries the idea of taking something to heart. It's more than just listening. It's taking it to heart. And when I do premarital counseling, one of the things we do is we have a, a whole session on, on communication. Uh, because I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, men and wife are sometimes different. Men, men and women are sometimes different. They sometimes communicate differently. And so one of the things we teach in premarital counseling is for, especially over like something that's, you know, hard or, or there's tension there is to have one person share and then the other person say, okay, what I hear you saying is this. And often they're way off. They, don't, they, they missed it completely. But by the simple process, what they're, what's, we're trying to teach the couples is to listen to understand rather than listening to respond. Usually in conflict, we listen to respond. As soon as the other person's done talking, then we respond right away. We're thinking of our response while they're talking, not really listening. But the, one of the best things you can do in marriage is listen to understand. Try and understand your spouse, hear what they're saying, and then respond. And what God's saying is, look, you need to listen. You need to take this to heart. You need to not just hear it. You need to apply it. You need to understand what I'm saying. If you don't hear what I'm saying, if you don't resolve to honor my name, then there will be consequences. He says, I will send a curse on you. And I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honor my name. Now, the way this is written in Hebrew, it seems like this curse is referring to a curse, referring specifically back to Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, God outlined for the Israelites, if they did all these things, they would experience tremendous blessing from the Lord, that God would pour out blessings on them. But if they turned from these ways, and if they rejected these ways, and if they disobeyed God, then they would experience the flip side of that. They would experience this curse. And it seems like, in the way the Hebrew is con constructed, that God is referring back to that curse. He says in verse 3, Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from the festivals, and you will be carried off with it. That's a beautiful image. Now, again, we're not from Israel, so we don't think about this. When they would have festivals, they would bring people would come from far and wide to the temple to bring their sacrifices. And as they brought those sacrifices into the temple, I don't know if any of you know what animals do when they're standing or walking. They defecate. There's the word. 
Anyways, so what they would do in temple, Exodus says you're to take all the dung and you're going to take all the hides of these animals. You take them out of the temple and you go take them and burn them. And what God is saying to the nation of Israel is I'm going to smear your faces with that excrement and I'm going to take you out. You're going to be carried off with all the junk that's carried out of the temple. Every time we have sacrifices in the temple, all this junk is carried out of my presence. And I'm going to smear your face with it and I'm going to take you out of my presence. That's kind, right? See, sometimes we, we emphasize the love and mercy of God so much, which is so important. That's why God starts Malachi with his love, that we lose sight of how holy and awesome and sovereign he is and how he demands our honor. If we truly want to follow God, he doesn't want our second best. He doesn't want us to cut corners. He wants us to give what is due him. He says, and you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. Now, in the Old Testament, we don't have a specific covenant between God and Levi the person, but we have a covenant between God and the Levites as his priests. So we think that God is referring back to this. Now, if you're new to the Old Testament, a little background is in order. So Israel, Jacob, had 12 sons. One of those 12 sons was Levi. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. When they entered the promised land, the Levites, those descendants of Levi, were the only one that didn't receive land because they were to be the priests. They were to work in the temple, live in the temple. So you had all these other places that had land, you know, but the Levites didn't because they were called to be priests. In Malachi's day, the Levites had Two jobs during that time. First, they were to act as judges. So in matters of the Torah, of the law, they were supposed to interpret appropriate actions. And when there were disagreements with people, they were supposed to pronounce judgment. This is what's right. And they were also mediators for the nation. They were mediators from God to the people, from the people to God. Now back to this covenant with Levi. What were the Levites supposed to do? My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence. And he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. And nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. Deuteronomy 21 says, The Lord God chose from them, the Levitical priests, to minister and pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. So God is saying, look, the Levites are my chosen tribe from Israel. And he says, True instruction was in their mouth. That word instruction means it's Torah in Hebrew. God's word was, was in their mouth. In other words, Levi spoke the truth of scriptures, but he also walked with God in peace and uprightness and led others to turn from sin. That's what the priests were supposed to do. That's what God called them to do. To lead the people, to follow the Lord, to speak God's word, to speak instruction to the people. To, to judge rightly. And so he says in verse 7, For the lips of a priest ought. There's that key word. This is what they're supposed to be doing. It ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. That is what people are supposed to look to the Israelites for. 
But what did the priests and Malachi they do? What did the Levites do? It says, but you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. They turned from the way. They disobeyed God. They caused many to stumble. They led others into sin. And they violated the covenant. And that's the same exact word used when talking about offering lame sacrifices earlier in verse 14 of chapter 1. So what did God do? I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality and matters of the law. God's punishment, 400 years of silence. No more prophets speaking from the Lord, words from the Lord. No more God speaking to them until the Messiah would come. So what can we take all this from all this? How do we take their context to our context? It doesn't mean I want next week for you, a whole bunch of you to bring some really good sheep into church, right? We don't have to make sacrifices anymore. Christ was the final sacrifice. So how do we take this into our culture? First, worship is an attitude of the heart. Their actions revealed their real heart. I love the definition of worship as worth-ship. It's ascribing God as greater worth than anything else that we have. And the, the thing about worship is God knows your heart. To quote one pastor, you can fool your husband, you can fool your wife, you can fool your kids, you can fool your coworkers, you can fool your Sunday school class, you can fool your pastor, but you cannot fool God. In our offerings of worship and our commitment to obedience, may we give the God of Israel meaningful, heartfelt worship. So what, do, what type of sacrifices does God want? Romans 12 puts it this way. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We don't come into the temple anymore. How do we give true and proper worship? We give God our bodies as a living sacrifice. We give God everything. We don't hold back. God, we want to give you our best, not our worst. We want to give you our first, not our last. We are the sacrifices ourselves. So the question is, if worship is an attitude of the heart, what's my attitude at home? Does my attitude at home and my marriage and with my kids, does it reflect the worth I'm ascribing to God? What's my attitude at work? Does my, do my actions at work, do my attitudes at work reflect giving worth to the God of the universe? Or am I selfish, petty? What's my attitude at church? When I come to church, is it about, did they play the songs I wanted? Did they preach the verse I wanted? Was life groups doing the, the, the study I wanted them to do? Or is our worth being ascribed more to God than our preferences? Do you have a heart of worship? Are you offering your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, as a spiritual act of worship? Second, as part of that, God doesn't want our leftovers. The Israelites didn't want to give up their good sheep. They wanted to give their bad sheep, the ones that they couldn't sell, the ones that were lame, the ones that they wouldn't miss anyways, the ones that they wouldn't get very much money from. 
We can do that too. It goes way beyond choosing what things to donate to a garage sale. Whether we choose to donate a Hot Wheel or an action figure. Instead of giving God the best of our service, we pick something that doesn't require very much work and doesn't impede on us at all. Instead of giving God the first fruits of our income, we wait till all the taxes are taken out, all the bills are paid, and if anything's left, God will give that to you. Instead of giving God priority on our relationships, we avoid talking about God with our family, our friends, or our coworkers. We stick to our selfishness in our marriage or with our parenting. We could go through every area of our life and ask the question, God, am I giving you the leftovers? In fact, maybe that's a good question to write down, to think about. God, in, are there any areas in my life where I'm giving you what's left instead of what's best? Where I'm choosing to give to me first and you second? I read a story of a young believer who attended a church service in Africa right after she got saved. And she was brand new to church, had never been to a church service. And she was sitting in the church and they started passing around the offering plate. And she was new to this, she didn't know what that was. And it, as she watched the things happening, she watched person after person put money in in the bowl and she started to worry because she didn't have any money the time came for her and she took it and she set it on the ground and she stood on it and she said god i don't have any money but i want to give you everything i am take me as a sacrifice that's what it means to offer our bodies a living sacrifice some of you might have a lot of money some of you have no money some of you might have a lot of stuff, but some of you might not have little stuff. All of us have to figure out, what does it look like to give God my best? What does it look like to give to God first instead of last? What does it look like for me to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God? See, worship is an attitude of the heart, and God doesn't want our leftovers. And third, God requires more leaders. The priests were leading people astray. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that those who teach will be judged more strictly. And so if you're looking into being a leader, if you're looking into saying, I, I want to I lead for the Lord, then you need to check your heart. Okay, am I willing to give God my best and lead through example? Fourth, and maybe most importantly, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice we have a great high priest why did god care so much about how sacrifices were made in the old testament because they all pointed forward to the final sacrifice they all pointed forward to jesus on the day of atonement they'd bring this lamb without blemish and they would lay their hands and, and pray and ask God to put the sins of the nation on that lamb and they would sacrifice it as an offering to God to pay the penalty for the sins of the nation. Then they had another goat that they would send out and they'd send it away from the camp as a symbol of saying their sins are being sent away, that God is taking away their sins. And all that pointed forward to a man named Jesus that would be born 400 years after this who would live a perfect life, who would die on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sins. God cared about this because 
He loved us so much that He was willing to send His only Son to die and be the eternal sacrifice, to pay the penalty for all our sins. So now we don't have to bring lambs. We don't have to go to the temple. Uh, The Bible says we are the temple. Our body is the temple of God. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. For those that have put our faith and trust in Christ, we no longer have to do this because the sacrifice was already made. Our sins have already been paid for at the cross. So now we, as, as an act of forgiveness, we go to Him and we ask for forgiveness. As an act of faithfulness, we, we give back to Him what He's given to us. Yesterday I did the funeral for Jean Pardee. Uh, Bill and Jean were married for 59 years. And I've done a lot of funerals over my life. And it's so different when you do it for somebody that knows the Lord. It's so different. In, in that funeral, I found this story, and maybe you've heard this story before. Uh, it was about Billy Graham, and, and Billy Graham was, was nearing the time when he would pass, and he was speaking at this luncheon. And he told the story about Albert Einstein. And one day, Albert Einstein was, was riding in a train, and... Uh, the conductor was coming down and checking all the tickets. And he got to Einstein, and Einstein couldn't find his ticket. And the conductor said, Einstein, I know who you are. You don't have to give me your ticket. I believe you bought a ticket. So Einstein's looking, checking his pockets, looking everywhere. He's like, sir, sir, I know you're Albert Einstein. I know your character. You don't have, I believe you bought a ticket. You don't have to show me. So the conductor continues. He gets to the end of the, the cab, and he looks back. And Einstein's looking under his seat, trying to find his ticket. And he goes back, sir. Sir, I believe you. You don't need to find your ticket. And Albert Einstein says, but I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> He's trying to find his ticket to find where the destination was. And Graham told that story, and he said, I just bought a new suit. I said, I bought this new suit be- for two reasons. One, to speak at this luncheon, but two, to be buried in it. He said, but when you see me in this suit and my coffin, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to cry. Because I know who I am, and I know where I'm going. Because Jesus died on the cross, if you believe in him, you put your faith and trust in him, you're a new creation. You can know who you are in Christ, but you can also know where you're going. You can have confidence that you're going to spend eternity in heaven because of what Christ did. So if you're here today and you don't have that confidence, the scriptures say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God loves you so much that he sent the perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin that you could not pay and to provide a way of salvation. So as we think about all these things, I think it's important for us to realize that it's so easy for us to give God our second best. It's so easy, so tempting to just give God out of excess instead of giving Him what's best in every area of our life. May we be people that give God our best. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for Your grace and mercy. Lord, thank You for these reminders. Lord, it's such a challenge because I know often I give You what's left over at the end of the day. Lord, I I struggle with these truths too, Lord. Help me to give you first and best. Help me to pursue you with all my heart, soul, and mind. Help me to lead well. 
And Lord, help our church to be a church that ascribes you the appropriate amount of worth, that puts you first in our lives and gives to you first. In your name we pray. Amen.